Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I am joined by Beth White, whose appearance on this podcast was highly requested by a number of our previous guests, as well as other former SLOC staff through various social media channels. So, Beth, thank you so much for coming. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm always glad to appear when summoned. <laughs> well, I hope you don't feel like you were compelled to do it, but I do appreciate yeah. you coming on nevertheless. It's my it's my absolute pleasure, Christian. Well, I see the green monster behind you, and it's not the it's, it, it's you're not in Boston, I don't I, think. I, I, I'm not I'm not in Boston, but I could be in Boston. If I if I wanted to be in Boston, I'd be in Boston. I've got lots of family from Boston. So I'm a big fan of the Big Green Wall in Fenway. But actually what's behind me is um, a true commitment to my Zoom game. We uh, we are, of course, um, every like everybody else in max telework. And uh, it's it's important for me, as as everyone on, listening to this podcast probably knows, it's important for me to to have a commitment to uh, entertaining and uh, and making people laugh. So we have I have all kinds of fun backgrounds that I show up with. Um, in the meetings. And actually yesterday I, I had an idea and I, I took a picture of myself with one of my often used backgrounds with my phone and I loaded it up and I started the meeting by having that background in and nothing else just to see how long it would take people to realize I wasn't actually sitting there, but it was a picture of me sitting, looking like they were sitting there. And it took a couple minutes. And then I came in from the side and it was like, how did you people not know I wasn't moving? You know, so it was, uh, <laughs> it was fun. I love it. I love it. Um, I actually want to try that sometime in a meeting just to see if I can go make a peanut butter sandwich while uh, everybody's having a meeting. It's the bathroom break scene. You just pop that, you turn the camera off, turn it back on. And I, I'm trying to get the video so I could nod, you know, knowingly a few times that kind of thing. That, that I think would buy me a little more time if, if again, bathroom and a sandwich. That would be cute. Yeah. If you could loop a loop a little video. I think that would be perfect. Yep. Well, you talked about teleworking. So where are you working? So I am in our nation's capital and uh, I am your tax dollars at work. I am now a federal employee. I work for the Federal Aviation Administration in D.C. Wow, that's fantastic. And uh, what are you doing for the FAA? So I actually came in. Uh, I don't know if you've talked to him yet, but Michael Huerta, who worked with our federal team, uh, during the games, <clears throat> became nominated as the deputy administrator of the FAA, and he and I chatted about coming in to do this. And I I came in, um, I guess about 2011, and uh, actually came in as an um, an appointee to work on a a program called NextGen, which is basically the modernization of the national airspace system. And uh, I did that for five or six years, and was getting ready. Michael's term was up, you know, political appointments. Your term is up. And um, I was getting ready to leave. And as I said, they commuted my sentence. They asked me if I would consider staying on and, and working on some projects. And, and I was really happy to do that. I love what I do. Um, I am now a, um, a senior strategist and I work on how we do all of our public and industry engagement on any kind of changes to the airspace system, any kind of major airport projects, anything like that. So it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm working with industry. I work with the Hill. I work with uh, folks who talk to communities and, and um, it's just great. I mean, a lot of really, really talented people in, um, in the FAA. And I, I just, I enjoy it every day. Aside from teleworking, have there been any other impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic 
Well, I, I will say that I am uh, probably, uh, I would say I have the COVID-7 uh, because I learned to make sourdough bread from scratch. And um, I kind of am a little obsessed right now. So there's a lot of bread in my house. I try to give it away, but uh, it's, it's hard to give it all away. But uh, no, you know, it's interesting. I uh, Once I got used to it, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate, you know, again, because I'm working for the government, I'm not you know, I'm not concerned about my job. Uh, my family is very safe. Um, and once I got the hang of being at home, now now it's a little hard because um, my laundry is right there. My kitchen is right there. Um, I don't have a commute. I, you know, have a little better, even better work-life balance. Um, so it's really interesting. I'm looking forward to having a little more freedom as we open up, but I'm also realizing that, um, being able to do things and keep your life a little more in order. I think like a lot of people actually are. Um, it's especially people who had long commutes. I never had a long commute. I'm, I'm living downtown DC. I'm in, in Logan circle and I used to ride my bike to work. I now have a Vespa and I ride that. <clears throat> I used to ride that to work. Um, but is uh, it's just, it's nice to have a little more balance and be home and be able to make yourself meals and 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 just feel like you've got a little more control over a few more hours of your day. Well, I want to go back to sourdough bread. How <laughs> did you decide, hey, I'm going to try making sourdough bread? So I got flat footed a few years ago when the government shut down and I had nothing to do. And I spent about $1,500, I think, at Lord & Taylor. And I said, I got to have a plan next time because I spent a little too much on clothing and, and some other things. So uh, we've had a few, uh, as they call it, they don't like to say close shots, they say lapse in funding. So I I learned how to make pizza uh, during the last lapse in funding. One short one before that, I learned how to roll my own sushi. But I've always wanted to do, and I love to cook. And um, some of the folks in Salt Lake that have experienced that, I've, I've had some dinner parties and brunches and things like that, and I really love to cook. But sourdough bread is really something I always wanted to try. And um, I thought this was the perfect opportunity. And, um, you know, I, I actually was somebody who was very gracious and gave me some starter and that got me going. And um, I made six or eight uh, batches so far. And um, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting the hang of it. There's a there's an expression that air traffic controllers use. They call getting the flick, meaning as the as the dial comes around, you see you see what things are. So um, as air traffic controllers say, I'm getting the flick. On, on how to make the sourdough. So it's coming out pretty good. It's got big airy holes in it now. It's chewy. It's delicious. I wish I could send you some, Christian. I can tell you're, you're, you're drooling. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I am. It's, it's getting close to dinner time here. My wife is making some fried chicken and it smells delicious in my house. I, I, I won't deny it. I will say your neighbors are probably happy Whenever the government shuts down because like, hey, <laughs> shut down. Yeah. <laughs> Beth can make us some sourdough bread. I, I absolutely I, I have uh, I'm starting to actually take orders. That makes it a little easier. So I've I've got people now who are kind of used to the fact that I'll I'll do like two bakes a week. So I make two or three, two or three loaves, and then people put in their order, and then I don't have to try so hard to get rid of it. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, uh, we could talk about bread all day. I love bread, but yes. uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, we're here <laughs> to talk about uh, Salt Lake 2002. So, Beth, um, if you if you are okay with this, we'll we'll wind the clock back. And and what I'd like to do is start out with your 
life before SLOT? What were you doing and how did you find yourself in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? So interestingly, I came out to Salt Lake City in, uh, I believe it was September, maybe October of 1990. And um, I came out there, I was working for a company called SMG. We had just taken over management of the Salt Palace Convention Center, which at the Salt Palace, I guess, Arena and Convention Center at the time, the jazz still played there. And um, we pretty quickly, um, I would say 1993, started working. I started working directly with Dave Johnson and some of his staff because of the bid for 1998. So, you know, I was really involved. And in fact, um, I have had to apologize, although I think it would have evolved this way anyway. But I've had to apologize to people in, um, you know, uh, organizing committees that have come after, because one of the things I said to Dave was, you keep telling me that you want to use this venue for the main media center, and it's very important to, or even the main press center, I'm not sure if they even envisioned a main media center at that point, <clears throat> it's very important to the IOC that this is locked down. I'm a convention center. A convention center signs contracts with people seven and eight years in advance. It's a lot better for both of us if we sign that contract now. Because I'm not then thinking you're waiting to the 11th hour to try to get something for me and vice versa. So let's sign it now. Let's sign it in a way that gives us some room around the edges to work on some of the finer points and details, but that nails down the space and the rates and some of the big pieces that come with that. And I think that what happened after the, after with the evolution is that what you did see was then it was like, okay, well, if you had that contract, why couldn't you have all these other contracts? And, and that, that actually did kind of become the norm, which as I've told other bids that I've worked on since then, when they've complained about that, it's like, that, that might be my bad. That might've been, I might've had something to do with that. And I apologize. I want to go back to 1998. Uh, when you started on that bid, you started working with Dave at that time. Um, did you get a sense that you had a shot at 1998 or did it seem like a pretty far flung thing? And that uh, in reality, our best shot was 2002. Yeah, no, you know, <clears throat> way back then, um, everybody could come out and we had the parade of the IOC come out and we really did. I think everybody thought we had it and it was, um, it was pretty devastating, um, to, uh, to the, to the community because they, I think a lot of those people had said, um, to the members of, of our organization that they were going to vote for them, which is, you know, when it's an anonymous ballot, it's always hard to tell. And so I think it was very, very difficult. And I, I know that um, I spoke to I remember a guy who was head of the time, head of the Chamber of Commerce, said that, you know, we were just kind of out of our we were out of our ken, you know, versus what some of these international cities were used to. And uh, we were a little naive in, in believing them and, and and maybe not adding some things to our to our plate to sweeten the deal as it were. So, um, you know, I think that, that, uh, it was, it was, a, it was a gut check, I think for, for them. And, um, but you know, luckily they, they were willing to press on. It was not as expensive as it is today. The, the, the entire piece was not as expensive of, of an effort as it is today. I worked on the Chicago, uh, bid, uh, actually got my shirt on. Of course the podcasters can't see that, but I have my, my Chicago bid shirt on. Um, and, you know, that was close to $80 million to bid on the games for 2016. So it was not that type of expense to Salt Lake at the time. But, um, you know, Salt Lake was a kind of a backwater town. I mean, I don't, I don't want to kind of, uh, you know, 
I don't mean this disparagingly because I was, I love Salt Lake, but we, one of the jokes was when we won for 2002, the next week, USA Today had a weather map and they never had Salt Lake. You know, that big color coded weather map, it would say Denver and then it would go across to like California. The, the, literally the next week, the weather of Salt Lake was on that map. I mean, that's the, that's the expression, right? We, we put it on the map and it, it changed the dynamic for Salt Lake City. It changed for, I know it changed for me as somebody who was in the hospitality industry um, because I still was at the convention center for another probably two years after that as, as the director of marketing and working with the Convention Visitors Bureau. And it, it changed how people perceived us as a destination, without a doubt. I mean, we were suddenly competing with Denver and San Francisco and cities like that where we, we were not before. We would not have been considered. We were a third tier city. So you you really did see the arc and 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 after the fact the the really really wonderful way that the hospitality community and uh, the Utah tourism team and everybody else marketed that after the games because with the 2008 slide with the economy they were able to keep a still a very consistent and persistent. Uh, amount of tourism and convention business coming to Salt Lake. They still rode the 2002 wave all the way through that recession. And that was kudos to them. To They, they really took advantage of that. Uh, I think you're absolutely right, Beth. Winning the games and then hosting the games were absolutely an inflection point for the city. I want to come back to the time that Salt Lake City was chosen. Uh, where were you? Were you here in Salt Lake City? Were you there at the city county building with everybody celebrating? Were you back in uh, uh, Budapest or wherever it was that they awarded these things? It, it was Budapest. It was Budapest. And I'll tell you, the interesting thing is Dave, I was still working at the Salt Palace and Dave said to me, you know, uh, because I, there were so many um I hosted so many tours over so many days. In fact, it was funny. I remember, I think her name was Ruth Ann Johnson, who was Dave Johnson's, uh, no, no, um, uh, no relation, secretary. And I said, is there any chance I could buy a Salt Lake Olympic jacket? Because they didn't have as many at the time. And um, Ruth Ann's, uh, Dave asked Ruth Ann, can you do me a favor? Can you, get, can you add up how many times we have asked Beth to tour the Salt Palace with IOC members? And she came back, she said it was 74 times, six of which on, on full holidays, like Thanksgiving or whatever, things that didn't matter. And he said, give Beth the jacket. <laughs> I wanted to buy one. He's like, just yes, you can give Beth the jacket. And he actually offered, he, he said I could come uh, with them and he would he would bring me as part of the um, the team. And I, and I honestly, after 2008, uh, 1998 had happened, I was so nervous. I said, I can't. I would just, it, it would have broke my heart to have been there. But I was front and center way up in the front at the city county building. In fact, you know, with my Zoom game here, one of my pictures is the picture I use is the celebration at the city county building because I love that moment. And um, you you would have thought that the reaction I would have had was to jump up and down and scream. And I think I screamed for a nanosecond and I was with one of my really good friends and I turned around and I buried my face in his shoulder and I just wept because I knew... I knew how much and how long so many people had worked for it. And it was just such a release and such a relief and just this excitement would come later. But right at that moment, it was nothing but tears for me. I just wept. That's so amazing for two reasons. One, you, you won 
or Salt Lake one. And number two, you didn't jinx it by going to Budapest. You stayed back in Salt Lake and uh, the good karma paid off. I'll tell you another interesting piece from that story is that I remember we were up against Stockholm, Sweden as one of the places we were up against. And at the moment that President Samaranch announced that we had won was eruption. It was a four camera. It was a split four screenshot. And um, everybody erupted in Salt Lake. And, you know, you you looked and I wept and I looked back and Stockholm people in the front were holding signs that said, congratulations, Salt Lake. And I thought that was the classiest thing I have ever seen. And so when I was working on the Salt Lake bid, I was the executive director of the celebration at Dealey Plaza uh, in the end. So I stayed behind there, too. <laughs> Uh, when we were in Copenhagen. And I told our people, I said, when we're going to have signs ready and we're going to have stuff on the screen. And if we lose, we are going to stay. We are not going to turn off the cameras. We are not going to do that. We are going to wait until there's a winner. And we are going to put that up on the thing too. And we are going to congratulate who won because that met, that that stuck with me as one of the most really just full of grace, classy thing to do in that moment when you know you're heartbroken to, to wish somebody else well. Well, that's super classy. And I really appreciate you sharing that story. So you sit there with your hands or your head in your hands, you're weeping or you're weeping on someone's shoulder. When does reality set in and you realize, oh, we actually have to organize these things? Well, luckily, I mean, I wasn't staff then. So <laughs> I don't think I had quite as much uh, concern, but it was more excitement. I, I just think it was just excitement. Again, it just, it, it was such a catapult, especially for, you know, when you're when you're in the hospitality industry, you're not I'm not there's not another convention center in Salt Lake. I'm I'm you know going up against I'm going up against Denver and San Francisco and Seattle and Chicago and Baltimore and Boston. And so all of a sudden I just you know, it, you just knew this is new. This is, this is different. The world is different from now on. We are we are in a whole other place and we have unique opportunities that we are going to capitalize on. So when did you end up uh, transitioning out of that role there with the convention center, the Salt Palace or Salt Lake Convention Center, and over to the organizing committee. I was going to say, I think it was the summer of, I think it was spring, like spring of 98. So it wasn't too much. I think we won in like 95. I think that's when it was. And then, uh, so it was was not long. It was just a couple of years, you know, um, was still, you know, I think it was like five, over five years with by the time we finished everything. Um, and I moved over and, um, and there was a couple different things we were looking at and, and, uh, they talked to me about a marketing position and then, uh, they talked to me about actually running the convention center as the international broadcast center and the main press center. And, um, and I met with, uh, Bruce Dworshak, who was a, a, you know, an icon in, in really in, um, in the world of press operations, which is, you know, a very small fields of spe- few specialists. And, um, and I met with Bruce and I, I remember, you know, saying, but I really don't, I don't know what it is that, that you do. I, I mean, I know other things. I know how to run this building. I know how to run big events. I know other things, but and he said, I, you know, after we met, he said, I'm pretty sure I can teach you this. I think that your familiarity with the city and everybody else in that building and, and, and just the idea of, of running a project like this, I think you'll be fine. I'll get you, uh, you know, I'll get you set up. You'll be fine. So you ended up running the uh, MMC. Right, right. Yep. The main media center. And I know there's been, 
<clears throat> some kind of other MMCs, but I don't think they've ever been quite as under one roof as we are. And it was kind of a cool moment in time. I don't, I don't think there will be again because the games keep growing. <clears throat> I don't, I, you, you'll never see one at the summer games. There's just not. I mean, unless they, they, you know, had a an Air Force hangar, you know, and and got three million square feet. Um, but even the even the winter games, you know, they keep growing. So I think that I know they they kind of did one in Torino and and some others, but uh, it was definitely the first putting them together the way we did. And um, and then when of course things changed after nine eleven, even with our footprint, we kind of became part of the whole downtown, which was really interesting too. So um, lots lots of firsts in that. Well, I know you came super prepared and you've got a list of things. So I want to make sure we get all those elements that are on your list. So Beth, let's go down your list. What what kind of stories do you have on your list that you uh, want to share with us today? Okay, let me see here. Um, well, you, you mentioned the early days and that's a good transition actually from where we are because I, I really didn't. Um, I didn't know anything about um, running a main press center or an international broadcast center. And so Bruce gave me, you know, these technical manuals. And I remember I got to about the fourth or fifth page in the technical manual. And there was a statement that said basically that the welcome the media receive and, and, you know, it's, it's not PR then, right? Your media operations is the care and feeding. And they're, they're there um, in this venue for months at a time. I mean, there's a reason why they call it main street. And there's a barbershop and a post office and a you know, general store. And, you know, um, and I'd done my homework a little bit. And Nagano found out the number two selling, one and two selling things, items were aspirin and underwear. That kind of told me a lot about what was going on there. But it said the welcome the media received will rightly or wrongly influence the way they cover the games, the organizers, and the city. That was paralyzing to me. I, I I literally cut that out of that or copied that and, and put it over my desk. And I carried it to every location of the multiple locations that I moved around the organization, you know, with the office space, because it to me was just such a, um, a key thing that that I was maybe even before the games happened, how I did my job was going to influence how Salt Lake was perceived. And that was daunting. So um, I, I really, you know, that that was a big that was a big deal. And so it, it kind of flipped me out a little bit. And I no it, pressure, huh? No, no pressure, no pressure at all. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you talk about the early days. One of the things I remember, I was at the office building before we had um, we moved to the big blue ghost. Um, and and you you were I think we were 35 people at the time. I mean, there wasn't a lot of people there. But when somebody new would come. It's just everybody would pick up their stuff and move one office down. You know, you just kind of keep rotating around the building and they try to keep, you know, people kind of together. But um, the, the best day was when I moved into this one office that had a huge pillar right in the center because I knew, oh, good. Nobody's going to want this for a while. So I'm not going to have to move. Um, and uh, so in, in the funny early day, well, it wasn't too funny, but I was also there not I've probably been there about four months when the the IOC bid scandal broke. And uh, notice I call it the IOC bid scandal because I will not use the um, uh, term coined by Hill and Knowlton calling it the Salt Lake Olympic bid scandal because it was the IOC Olympic bid scandal. <laughs> uh, we should not own that. We should not wear that like a, a, a cloak in my mind. <clears throat> but it was it was not fun. I, I've heard some other folks talking about it on the podcast, Christian, and I 
you know, to have left a job that I had um, for eight years working up through a company that I had a lot of, you know, growth and I was, I had a future and I moved over the organizing committee and this hit. And it was to a community like Salt Lake where you have so many good people. This seemed like a terrible stain, you know, and everybody was worried. Are we going to, is anybody going to trust us? Are we going to be able to raise money? And it was really hard. And you'd come off, you'd come off the elevator in the morning and there'd be 40 journalists in the lobby. And, you know, they'd kind of run at you and then they'd realize you're nobody and then they'd back up. But it just was not a fun way to come to the office, like, you know, an episode of 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace waiting for you. It just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable. Um, but I, I do remember one day, and this is where I'm going to pivot to the funny, is um, Caroline Shaw and Shelly Thomas and Frank Zhang were all trying really hard to manage this. And, you know, I guess somebody had just reported something and not bothered to check. and. Um, Frank was on his phone and my office was kind of catty corner from Frank. So I could see Frank standing there and he just kind of lost his cool with this reporter. And he said, well, if you're not going to listen to me, why don't you just interview all the other people in the media? And, you know, he just kind of went crazy and then he bang hung up his phone. And I remember I just kind of looked at him from across the hall and he was like, yep, well, (laughs) I was like, I popped off. I guess I'm okay. I'll come back to it, you know? But it just, it was a lot of pressure and a lot of strain and people were nervous. I mean, they didn't know, I, all of us had left these jobs for, you know, for short term, something amazing and adventure. And you just didn't know where it was going to go. And it was, it was really, you know, I think we all look back on the beautiful, wonderful thing that ended up being the games. But the reality is that was a very dark time and a, and a really, uh, a really stressful one. And I remember I went to lunch with Bruce, who had worked in the LA Games and had worked in a number of other, you know, big, big events. And and he made me feel better. He said, you know, these type of things, I know you see people and you think these people are, you know, they they, they must be the only people that can run this. He said, but it's at a certain point, it almost becomes like a monster and it moves forward. And And unfortunately, people won't always stay with us, whether through bad situations or good ones but we will persevere and we will push forward and and it will be okay. And and he was right. The aftermath of that IOC scandal, Mitt and Fraser come in. And uh, uh, what do you think? Oh, at first I'm like, oh God, you know, um, you guys from venture capital, you know, uh, where, what do they know? Uh, this is going to be a disaster. And I remember one of the very first meetings, um, and we had a meeting directly with Mitt, myself and Bruce, and he literally started the meeting and said, I don't know how to do what you guys do. And essentially said, uh, I'm probably paraphrasing, but I'm going to trust you with your budget. I'm going to trust you with what you have to deliver. Until you show me, I shouldn't. But I'm good. I, I'm going to trust you to do your job. This this is why we've hired you. You are a subject matter expert. And all I'm going to ask you is, will you help me? Please don't hold on to money. If you don't think, if you think you can do it for fifty thousand dollars and there's a hundred thousand dollars in the budget, please give me that fifty thousand dollars back. That's what we have to do. That's what I'm good at. That's what I'm going to do. If we can kind of get some of this money to make sure we we don't want to be 
spending too much money. How I need to cat, you know, figure out how to manage the cash, do all this other stuff. And that was that was scary because you don't want to give the money back and then not to be able to deliver. But you felt that there was it was real, there was trust. He's not gonna let you, you know, leave you out there. And and we did. You know, we went and it kind of for me, honestly, it kind of made it fun. Um, because it was how can we figure out a way? I love problem solving. <clears throat> how can we find a way to do this differently? Um, to pivot. That that was really fun. Um, one of the things actually in your thing you talk about a challenge is um <laughs> Dave Johnson asked me, he goes, Hey, do me a favor, will you go over and take a meeting with the guys from Herman Miller? And I said, sure. And he, he gave me no other heads up than that. And I get in the meeting and it turns out that a promise has been made, as many promises were made prior to the bid, that every broadcaster was going to be sitting in a Herman Miller Aeron chair and that on the screen would be a little thing that said, Dan Rather is sitting in a Herman Miller Aeron chair courtesy of, you know, Herman Miller, or I think it was even the, the local company in Salt Lake City. <laughs> so, I mean, of course, that was not something that was going to happen, but and these guys, I was just in a buzzsaw. I mean, I just, they just, they just drove right through me like a, you know, like a knife through butter and, and uh, just let me have it. And I said, I, I said to them, I said, look, I said, I'll tell you what, I said, I, I wasn't part of that, but I said, I hear what you're saying. I hear that you're frustrated, um, but let's do this. Let's talk about what you have as a company. And as I start to think about how we're going to design this venue, I promise you, I will think of every way I can to include you in that in a way that might be even better to you than than what this was. I understand thinking that you're going to be on television is a big deal, but but let's figure this out. And um, and I met with him two or three times. And one time while I was there, I was walking through the office, actually, honestly, to go to the restroom. And I saw, you know how in cubes they have those slat walls and they have the cubes that fit into the trays that you can move up and down in the slat wall. So one of the big things that we have, and it's always been a weird expense at the main press center, is these things they call pigeonholes. And what they've usually done is literally manufactured these things where you could have hundreds of paper uh, delivery of start times, split times, you know, uh, athlete bios. I mean, all this information that was still in the info system. But these journalists, they uh, probably to this day still want to have some paper. They like to write on it. They want to have that data in their hands. And, you know, building this thing sometimes was, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars because it's such a bizarre structure. And um, I remember I went back to Bruce and I said, let me ask you something. Does it have to be fed from behind? Why is it? And he goes, it's just because we've already always done it that way. And I said, I have an idea. I'm going to work with these guys. I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to show you what I think we can do. And, and, and we're going to do a demo. We're actually going to build it in the Salt Palace um, uh, ballroom to show you. Because the other thing they used to do all of the games was they'd build cube walls. They'd put up three or four 27, 30-something inch television sets, and they'd stack them on top of each other in a cube, and you'd project one image on that big area. But I knew projection TV was going to was, – was better than it had been. And I also knew the venue because I, I had – built the convention center. I had been the director of marketing and had worked to build the convention center. And I knew the, the room at the time was 38,000 square feet with a 40 foot ceiling. So cube walls were going to be, would be diminished in that space. But if I flew screens from the ceiling, that would really be something. 
So um, I remember I told Bruce and he's like, ah, I don't think so. And, and we set the room up and looked at using all this Herman Miller office, modular office furniture walls to build all the space, to build all the desks, to build all the pigeonholes, to do much more than they would ever have done. And, um, and he loved it and they loved it. And it turned out to be such a win because in the end, they actually sold the stuff that we, we had and, and, you know, we're able to sell it and, and we ended up getting some of the money back from that too. So it, it was just kind of a really interesting challenge that turned into a win for everybody. Um, what would you consider to be your biggest win there during your tenure in Salt Lake? That's an interesting one. That wasn't one of your pre-prepared questions. I know. It's sneaky of me. I'm sorry. I honestly, I, I think one of the things that I'm the most proud of is how our team worked. Um, you know, you, when you're in an organization like the games and it's such a big deal to the city, um, we talked about this coming in is that I, I really didn't want to be somebody that ever said any of our team to say to anybody, you're going to do this because we're the organizing committee and we want that. We, we wanted it to be, I wanted it to be our team to have that, you know, that we are really working with the community, any business around the Salt Palace and we just shut a road with the Salt Palace, with the Salt Palace vendors, with the Salt Palace staff, with anybody that we would, with the fire marshal, anybody we'd come in contact with. I, I wanted it to be, I wanted our team to be somebody they they talked about afterward and said, those, those, those guys, you know, they they were wonderful to work with. They 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 were respectful of us. They asked us for for things well in advance. They didn't they didn't put us a rock in a hard place. I think I think that and that that ended I think that that projected to uh, how people experienced things in the venue. So I, I would say that I mean how I, that was a I was really proud of the people that were on our team and how they performed that way. All right, I'll let you get back to your list so that I don't surprise you too much. What what else you got there on your list there, Beth? Looking at interesting people, you said some of the interesting people, and I, you know, to me the the thing that was really fun. I was I had moved to Salt Lake when I was in my probably mid twenties. I think it was about twenty five when I first moved there, and I was probably thirty two. You know, when the game when I moved over to the games, and I think that was the average age of people at the games was like at that time was like thirty two. And I think just the camaraderie, I mean, I, you know, I could, I could start to rattle people off and then I'd be in trouble because I'd miss people, but, you know, playing on the softball team, you know, just all the, yeah, I used to have Sunday brunches and we'd kind of welcome people as they came because I lived there. I felt like I had a little bit of an obligation to, to welcome people that were coming from different parts of the country and, uh, you know, take them on hikes, make sure they saw, you know, parts of Salt Lake because, I, I remember hearing Maureen Sweeney say the other day that, you know, certain people came from different cities and they're like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't New York. And it's like, no, it's not New York, but it's also uniquely Salt Lake. And, and if you, if you leave and you don't hike up behind the Arboretum at the university and you don't take some time to go to Park City or Heber or, you know, ski or, or take a day trip down to some of the, the national parks, you're really missing out because it's such an amazing such an amazing city that way and 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 probably will always feel like a second home to me i will i will consider it a home base forever and um so i i think that the camaraderie is what i really remember is is having such a core group of of really great friends and and uh and my and also i think the other thing the only names i'll call out are uh was a i had a regular golf game and it was um myself and dave busser 
who is our chief technology officer, and then uh, pretty much always Ed Einan. And then we rotated in the fourth. So it was kind of, it became kind of a coveted um, position of playing the fourth position. And Dave was great. He'd always get the dates and times. And I missed that after I left. Because he'd say, okay, it's 8.30 at Davis. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll be there. Um, and I, I just, I love that. Um, I really, you know, the thing to me, I think with that, with that group of people was, uh, it's a unique time in our lives. And I, I felt from the minute I started that I had been lucky enough to, to have landed a spot on an all-star team and that, you know, I had to every day earn my spot, you know, every day you couldn't, you really, it was so many good people so much, so much effort, so much quality that uh, you, you just couldn't let your guard down. You you just had to, you had to earn your spot every day. I have to go back to the golf. Who was the best golfer? Uh, Dave was pretty good. I think Dave, I think Dave was, uh, Dave was probably the best of the group. Uh, I don't know if we had any ringers who came in on the fourth, um, but, uh, but we were all, you know, equally matched enough, but Dave, Dave was definitely the better golfer. You know, one of the things that I've been really impressed with, Beth, talking with you is that you seem to have such a an optimistic outlook. And I think delivering a games which is extremely challenging benefits from having people that are naturally optimistic. I want to know where the optimism comes from. I'm heavily medicated, Christian. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, uh, maybe it is the Irish leprechaun in me. Um, yeah, I, uh, I know that, uh, Ina Grenis and Ingen Teller will tell you, because I also know that now through, uh, DNA that I, my, uh, history is all, uh, Norwegian and Irish that it's just, maybe I'm just a, um, a Viking leprechaun, but uh, no, I just, it doesn't, I think the, I've been really lucky in my life, uh, incredibly lucky. I mean, look at the opportunity to come out to Salt Lake and and find that incredible place and then and then to have an opportunity to work on the games. I mean, how can you not be optimistic? Well, I just look at the example of the office that's got a pillar in the middle of it. And your thought isn't, I can't believe I got this crappy office with a pillar in the middle of it. Your thought is, hey, I'm not going to have to move. This pillar is awesome. I, I have been accused more than one time of being a Pollyanna. So I do I do sometimes tend to see the silver lining around things. And again, I don't know where the, I don't know where that comes from. But uh, I guess I'm just lucky. Well, if there's any time that we need a Pollyanna, it's probably now with, yes, with yes. Us, so much uh, chaos. So I am sure that all of your colleagues and all of our listeners are going to appreciate your Pollyannish approach <laughs> here today. I do personally. I really appreciate it. All right. Let's get back to the list. What else have you got, Beth? Uh, the other one that I had on my list is kind of an interesting story is... Um, I don't know if you remember, but there was a lot of drama and concern. Anytime there's something that had gone wrong in a previous games, the games it gets kind of, it, it drags it like an anchor. You know, everybody's like, whoa, we don't want it to happen like there. And, and you know, we were coming right off Atlanta. And while, you know, if you were watching the games on, at the time, probably, probably NBC, might, might have been CBS, but probably NBC, um, you, you would have seen a great games on the field of play. But if you were working in the Olympic movement, you knew that there were some significant things that happened operationally, some major failures in transportation and some major failures in information, especially for the media. And so uh, there, there was just a lot of angst about making sure we delivered some of those things. I mean, I think it went all the way to the White House. You know, that was why 
you know, some of the projects we were working on, I think, to get roads done and money for things. You know, there was a there was a commitment that that came down from that. And I, I will not steal Cindy Gillespie's thunder. I'll let her give that in her podcast. But um, the tra- the poor transportation department, I, I really did. I felt terrible for them because I knew from my workings with them and, you know, Ingen Tilleros, who was my transportation manager for the, the main media center, that, I mean, she had she had this thing down, nailed six ways from Sunday. There was no getting around her. You know, it's like tr- trying to dribble past Kobe. It ain't happening. She's got you. So um, we did a tabletop exercise, I remember, up at the University of Utah. And there were several things that were thrown at us in trying to do this. But in, all, in, in every occasion, transportation kind of rose to the occasion. And not only did they rise to the occasion for transportation, they kind of nailed it one time on a communication that needed to get back between venues, back to the media center and to the mock. And so, um, and I was waiting for somebody to say something about that because they've been so beleaguered. And so we got to the very end and it really wasn't my place to say it, but Fraser said, is there anybody, anything else that anybody wants to say? And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'd like to say is, did anybody notice that, you know, transportation went off flawlessly and not only did transportation go off flawlessly, but they they crushed it in two or three other areas where they picked up the ball after some other people. And maybe we ought to get off their ass and, and look at some other groups that maybe need some more help, but they're good. Let them go. And literally the transportation department was in the back of the room and they erupted. (laughs) And it was like, I think I might've even, they considered trying to lift me up like Rudy going out of the room and I resisted. I'm like, no, 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 thank you very much. But they were just so excited to, that somebody said, you know, I think transportation's good. Let's move on. I think we've we've solved we've cracked that nut. Well, it's it's such a nice thing to hear because your transportation is uh, a challenge in every games and um, and it's been it's been problematic in other games too. Even after even after. So I mean, the fact that I think it worked so so well, it was and it's an easy it's an easy one for people to criticize, to say, oh, it didn't show up or it didn't do it. And, and you don't know that it, it did or didn't show up. I mean, again, going back to that, I remember being in a broadcast meeting. I had to sit, I sat in a daily broadcaster briefing with Manolo and, and ISB and, and somebody said, oh, it didn't, the, the bus didn't come and I was here and I was there. And I just made eye contact with Ingen and she stood right up. She had her list and nope. That bus was there. Here's the driver. Here's the bus number. We have it. You know, we've got it. We know everybody was. And with that, Manolo just kind of killed it and never took another transportation question. It's probably the third or fourth day. So, you know, some of it's really also not allowing um, a narrative to spin out of control because it's an easy narrative to have. Um, and there's so much hard work that goes into so many things. And, and, uh, you know, to your point about a perception, whether your perception is to be, you know, uh, to look at things from the, a positive, it, it really is interesting how it can it can drive the narrative. If you choose to drive it toward the negative, you can do that. But if you choose to take it toward the positive and start to talk about what's working, it, it can change the whole way you talk about the games. And it's always nice to have facts on your side, I guess. <laughs> That's what it's. 
yes, I won't go into what's happened to facts recently, but yes, I think that, that definitely it's, it's, it's good to at least try to have facts on your side. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, coming out of those games, what is something that you learned or an experience that you had there that impacted the rest of your career? Do you know, I'll tell you, it's a, uh, and that's a ringer. That's another question you didn't ask me ahead of time, but the, um, the funny little thing that I learned was uh, I went to, I was seconded to Sydney and I was there for about, I think I was there for almost four months. Um, and what I saw was a little thing like being short on small wares. So small wares being your ladles, your big soups, your knives, your some of your kitchenware, um, they misjudged it and it was too late to get it back. Uh, it's an island, obviously, a continent island, and there was just not enough way to to get those things there. And I I came back from that experience and I said, whatever we can do today, let's do it. If we have to put it in a box and put it on a shelf and list what it is um, in preparation for the uh, the meetings that we did with um, with the broadcasters and the and the press ahead of time, I saw that what they had done was to have the meeting and have nothing quite decided and let them kind of work through maybe what they wanted to do. And of course, then you're, you know, you're got a lot of opinions and where they might want their office and all these types of things. And I said, Oh yeah, I can see, I'd rather do it this way. And so what, that's what we did was we, I asked them what the key things they wanted in, in where their space would be proximity, size, you know, close to this person, far from that person, you know, if it's a competitor, where do you want to be? And so when we had that meeting, we literally said, everybody up, walk down to the hall, and we had taped off and already established every single office for every member of the written press, photographic press, national organizing committee that were going to have an office space inside of the main press center. We had cars and all the equipment that you would rent on a rate card, and we had built a, a, a model office. So they could see what that would look like. And it was one of those great moments for me because you've got these jaded members of the media. And and we again they're taped on the floor and everyone had an easel in it. And on the easel it said the sign of what their their organization was. And they literally the, the doors are big roll-up doors in the salt palace. They're like a the same as the back of house, the elephant door that you have. And so we rolled up the doors, and again, these jaded members of the media kind of went, oh. They rocked back on their heels in shock and then ran in and ran to their office and started taking pictures of themselves in this little taped off space that was going to be their office during the games. And so I think it was it was literally seeing the experiences and, and a good, good learning, not as a not as a negative to Sydney, but a, a learning of if you can the things that you could do ahead of time, because you don't know what's coming down the path. You don't know the other things that could happen. And there's always going to be something. So as much as you could get established and on track, you're going to be able to get your head up and see the things that you, you're not expecting because there's always something you're not expecting. Well, another learning I gather from what you just said is it's helpful to go and see a previous games, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, because, well, and the other reality, Christian, is nobody is going to write a, a post-games report, honestly, and tell you what they did wrong. I think it's just it's just human nature. You, nobody wants to tell you where they failed. And, and even though the failure is where you learn, it's just really hard to do that. So one of the things I'll, I'll give you a great example of being in Sydney. 
the Sydney Organizing Committee, because Sydney Olympic Park was so big, right? It was just ginormous. They bought this, it was like a golf cart train. It had like eight or 10 cars to it. And they thought, this is great. We will drive the media through Sydney Olympic Park in this thing. And, and the, so they don't have to walk. It cost them, like I said, several hundred thousand dollars. And they, it was going, it would go so slow because you couldn't get around the people. So people would just jump off of it. The media would jump off it and just walk to the venue. It was faster to walk. So they parked it and it just sat there and the people would sit on it and they'd pose on it and they knew what it was. And it was in the, in the main press, it was kind of funny, you know, it did. but after the games, they wrote about it, that it was a huge success and thank God they spent the money. And, it, and it's just because people don't want to be called out for making a mistake, you know, and it's, it's a shame because really from a philosophy um, after the, after the games were over, um, I ended up, uh, working with Toyota on a project and and representing USA Swimming and their sponsor, to, working with Toyota and their sponsor of USA Swimming. And I loved this thing they do. It's called Kaizen. And it's how they study, um, you know, a problem or how something was handled. But it's it's not it's not pejorative. It's not that something somebody shouldn't be punished. It's a learning experience. And it is that there is no there is no such thing as best. There is only better. You can never attain best but you can strive to be better and you can't be better unless you figure out what it is that's holding you back. And if you can't learn from some of those things. So I just think that's, it, it's a little bit of a shame. And I think that a lot of people would tell you that was one of the challenges of the entire transfer of knowledge concept was that it's really hard to get people to be deadly honest about what didn't work so they could help other people learn. I have some thoughts on that. I'll share them after the podcast. Yeah. But the key learnings for you, golf cart train, no. Plenty <laughs> of small wares, yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The other interesting thing from Sydney that I learned was that when I did a, I did a survey of the media because I was curious. I wanted to know what they thought of the Sydney games, of the, of the care and feeding, the element that I was going to be doing. And one of the things I asked them was, what did they think of the food? And they had probably 50 choices when you got into the cafeteria. Um, and they said, not enough variety. And I realized it was because it was 50 choices for 30 days. So what we did was we just created, you only had seven or eight choices for about four days. And then we'd rotate and we'd have something else. And then you'd keep one or two things that were you liked, we, that really saw were big sellers. And, and, it, and they said, oh my God, the food at Salt Lake was so incredible. And it was they had probably more choices and um, a, a greater breadth than we did, but we we rotated. We we had um, things where you could just grab a snack, and we had an Italian, you know, beautiful Italian restaurant um, that was really white table and very expensive, and for people with expense accounts and stuff like that. And so we did. We didn't necessarily give them more. It just the perception was there was more variety. Well, for the staff, we had hot dogs every day. Yeah. So I'm happy to hear that the media were well taken care of. I have I have heard the hot dog stories, and I will tell you that um, it, nobody at the Salt Palace will tell you that they had uh, they ate hot dogs. We did not we did not eat hot dogs. We had beautiful, amazing food. I'm very sorry for your loss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see the tears. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Before we get to our assignments and wrap up, is there 
Uh, anything else on your list that we need to cover? I don't think so. I think the only other thing I was going to tell you um, is that, you know, post games, um, what was really interesting to me is I ended up uh, going to uh, California to work for a company called the um, Anschutz Entertainment Group. And I opened up a big uh, Olympic training site and, and uh, sports facility. And then after there for a couple of years, I actually left to do the um, uh, swimming trials. And, and, you know, we did what I felt we probably were is the should be the future of the games. And I'm not sure it's going to get there. Um, and that was to build a lot of temporary facilities. You know, there's, there's just such a, and that was what the Chicago bid was about was, was really sustainability of the games. And, um, I'm hoping that we see that in the future, you know, uh, as we go, there's, uh, the games is such a, a, an amazing thing. And, you know, people talk about the legacy of the games and I think they've got it all wrong. You know, they point to buildings and, and, and programs and stuff like that. And they're wonderful. But the legacy of the games is is the kids in Park City that saw the Olympics and had access to things and then went on to medal in Torino or Sochi. You know, it's 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 the humans that go on to to, you know, fall in love with the games and catch the Olympic spirit and and strive to be an Olympian. And, and you do that by creating something that is sustainable. And, and can be managed by, by communities. And, and the model right now is running to a point where I, it's just, it's not as sustainable. And I, and I hope they kind of come back to a, a more reality-based and, and sustainable model of some temporary facilities and, and really thinking about what's the long-term, what's the long-term effect. And, and it is, again, the people, it's not infrastructure. I agree on all those points. And I think a great sustainability move would be to bring the games back to Salt Lake. We are in violent agreement, Christian. This has been an absolute joy, Beth. Let's get to our assignments. First assignment's a song. Uh, any particular song or a group that you used to listen to back in the uh, day when you hear it today, it reminds you of your time in Salt Lake. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm going to I thought about this and I thought about Googling something just to give you an answer. And then I thought, no, the, the better answer is the truth. And that is, I feel like I have a pop culture hole in my psyche from about 1998 to 2002. People will mention a TV show and I'm like, I've never heard of that TV show. Um, I, I think you just were so focused on the games. I have to say I'm, I'm much more of a lover of 80s music than 90s. Even 2000 things came back a little better for me. But uh, the song, it just wasn't there. I mean, I it just I, I seemed, it felt like there was an awful lot of boy bands and I just wasn't. Yeah, not so much. So we're not going to hear your favorite sync song, I guess, on our Spotify playlist. Uh, yeah, um, uh, maybe bye bye. <laughs> if I gotta go there. Wonderful. Let's go to food then. How about food? A uh, particular restaurant that you like to frequent uh, when you so, live there in Salt Lake City? Yeah, I wish I could remember. I want to say Blue Moon. There was a place across the street that was really awesome. They had a kind of like a cool sandwich thing. And then they used to pull a, a black curtain at night and change the lighting. Um, and I think that's the name of it. I'm sure. I, I don't know if it's there anymore. Um, for me, other personal places, there was, I love Rio Grande Cafe. Um, a place called Fresco's that was near where I lived. Uh, it was up at Ninth and Ninth um, area. There was a soup place that was over on Third West that I just loved. It was like the soup Nazi. They just had these really big, you go every day and get soup. And then the other place I will say that had a special place was I found on the, the day that I left the Salt Palace um, and I was driving away my last day, I happened to go a totally different route home, apropos of nothing, for no reason that I'm aware of. And I remember sitting at the light and looking to my right, and there was this dive bar 
with a big aluminum crocodile outside. And it said it was the crocodile lounge. And so my first couple days at Slock, I sent a note out and I said, I saw this place on the way home. Who wants to go? And I got a number of takers and we, we went there like every Friday night, a couple days a week, we'd go for about a year and a half. And then we formed the softball team and we stopped going for one summer because we were playing softball and the place went out of business. And that was alarming to me of how much alcohol we must've been consuming. If one summer we didn't go, they didn't make it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Fraser probably had a budget line item in there for the crocodile lounge. Um, We'll go ahead and get whichever of these exist still. We'll, we'll put them on our map on the website so people can find them. Yeah, that's great. To wrap us up, what's your magic memory of the games? So I'm going to give you kind of a, a twofold answer here. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, one specific. I, I will tell you what, going back to how we started, I'll, I'll bring it back. I'll, I'll bring it home. Um, going back to where we started, that that thing that I carried around from office to office, my concern was when the game started, one of the other things is if nothing is really exciting on the field of play, the media will look for something else to report. And it was, everything was running really smoothly. Everybody was happy. And and that's a little nerve wracking. You know, it was almost boring how smoothly things were running. You know, we opened, I opened like mid-January. And I remember I reached out to Mitt and I said, you need to come over here and just shake people's hands. And he did. He came over and just thanked people for working. So I was like, oh, no, this just looks this looks like people running around the media, running around looking for like polygamy stories and how you can't get a drink in Utah and all that stuff. And I remember I was just bemoaning this. And um, my parents said to me, they were there volunteering. They said, we got tickets to a Bravenel Hall and myself and my venue doc, uh, Mike Noyes. We went over and watched a concert and didn't, my, uh, Mike was even telling me, he says, you need to settle down. It's going to get better. Something will happen. It's okay. And we walked back in. We walked under, you know, for Bravenel Hall is right next to Salt Palace. And I walked back in and I remember people were clustered around televisions that were on, you know, you had a couple of them in the hallways on, on you know, those racks. And I thought, uh-oh, what happened? And I ran over and they kept replaying this thing where everybody fell down during the short track speed skating, except this like 33 year old guy from Australia who basically was finished with his career, but had finagled his way onto the team because he was selling a new kind of skate and he really wanted to get there. And, and he goes across the finish line with that look of just, Oh my God, everybody fell down and I just won a gold medal. And I thought, uh Oh, this, this might be it. Like this could be the thing. At least now the hook is in this game's got interesting. And uh, the next day, uh, when you announce a press conference at the, uh, the main press center, you do it over a loudspeaker and you say it in the, the, the language of origin of the country. Uh, obviously, the, the language of the games is, is English and French. And so we said it in English and French. And then if it was, let's say, if it had been Italian, we would have said it in Italian. So my deputy venue, venue manager was Mark Callaghan, and he was from Australia. And so I asked him, I said, would you announce the press the, the press conference with the Stephen Bradbury in Australian. So he got on the mic and did another, you know, did a whole, you know, g'day, you know, we're really proud to, we're proud of our mate. You know, he's a, why don't you grab a couple of cold things in your esky and head on up to the main press. <laughs> so it was just really fun. And of course, you know, right after that, the, uh, we hit the, the, the figure skating scandal 
And I, and I didn't worry after that. It was all going to be about the field of play and we would not be uh, the focus of any of those stories, which was really something that I, I felt very heavily on my shoulders after I read that line in the, uh, the text, you know, the, the, the manual for delivering, delivering the games. And I'll say the other thing I just, for me, maybe the tingly memory when I think about the games, Christian, is, you know, I lived there for um, seven or eight years before I joined. And, um, and like I said, it's, it's always going to be home for me. It was a total of 12 years living there. And, and the way the people treated me when I moved there, uh, the welcoming that I felt from that community, the concern that I would feel welcome from people that would come up to me and say, you know, are, are people being nice to you here? Nobody's bothering you if you're not interested in, in learning about the church, are they? You know, they were just so sweet and, and welcoming and warm and cared about their community and cared about their state. And, and when the scandal hit, I think people like myself who'd lived there, again, felt this pressure of, I, you just didn't want to let these people down that this was going to be devastating if, if we, if we didn't deliver. So, and then being able to kind of deliver the games, but then to see the added layer of what the people of Utah brought to those games. Um, when I have, again, I've worked on the Chicago bid. I worked on the San Francisco bid. I worked on the New York bid. I've, I've helped on the London bid. And I, and I will tell people that, you know, I can write a million manuals and tell you how to do certain things, but what delivered the magic of the Salt Lake games was the people of Utah. It was the, it was the way they volunteered. It was the way they welcomed people. It was the way they waved from a frozen parking lot when they got some kind of crummy assignment to stand, you know, 16 miles away from anything. And they were happy. They were thrilled. They were so proud of their state. And that to me is what made the games magic was the people of Utah. Well, very well said. And I'm biased, I'm sure, when I say this, but as a hometown person, I do agree with you. I think the people of Utah were outstanding for the games. And to this day, they are Olympic crazy here. And that's why I think another games here would be amazing. Yeah. They're the, spe the special fry sauce on the games. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a huge amount of fun going down this proverbial memory lane with you, Beth. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. If people want to reconnect with you on social media or, or other ways, what's the best way for them to do so? Sure. I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Um, I was going to say, I, I think you probably, I think it's like EB white 17 on Instagram and, Oh, and I'm Beth white to go on, uh, on Twitter. And, um, I'm happy to share my email too. It's Beth underscore white at Mac.com. I'd love to hear from anybody and everybody. All right. Thank you so much, Beth. I appreciate it. Once again, listeners, please like, and subscribe to our podcast. And finally, again, Beth, thank you so much.